Hello team and welcome to episode 394 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Corey Allen. Corey is an author, podcaster, and audio engineer. It would surprise me if you've not come across Corey before or come across his wildly popular Instagram profile where he posts slow thoughts for fast times. The content that Corey posts is often profound and extremely relatable, and I was excited to go deeper on some of these concepts that he writes about and get to know the man behind the podcast and the quotes. In this episode, you can expect to learn where Corey's story began with mindfulness, meditation, and spirituality, how to not get caught up in comparison when striving to towards your goals, along with the best way to handle family trauma and prioritize your own peace. So without further ado, Corey Allen. Corey Allen, welcome to the show. How are you today? Good, man. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. The pleasure is truly mine. I'm super excited to dive into our conversation today. And I have learned a lot about you over the years of consuming your content and listening to your work. But I'd love to give the listeners a little insight into who you are. So you can tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm a, a author and a podcaster, writer. Um, also, I have released a lot of meditation courses, sort of things like that. Um, and I was a, a music producer for 10 or 15 years prior to moving into the space that I'm at now. What was the transition like from music producing over to the space that you're in right now? What called you to come into this direction? Yeah, it was really organic, actually. And what, what's nice is that um, I've always tried to use all of my disciplines, uh, try to have them help each other in some way. And kind of be creative about how I mix those things together and, and get them to support. So, yes, I was doing, uh, like, I started my own music production company uh, in my uh, 20s and was doing that for over a decade. And all that time, even from the time that I was, you know, like a, a teenager, I was interested in inner life stuff and, you know, Eastern wisdom traditions and general consciousness exploration and whatnot. But I, that was always just a private part of my existence. And so uh, it never really occurred to me to make that public, you know. And so while I was doing this audio production uh, business, uh, eventually, um, about 10 years ago, I had a friend who, I, I can't remember how we got connected, but he was trying to set up his podcast and, um, he set up, he actually started looking to how to set up his gear. He didn't know how to set up his gear, but he's like, I want to start a podcast. I have the gear. I don't know how to set it up. And I was like, I'll come over and help you set it up. Um, so I set it up, we recorded a podcast and he had a, a sizable following at the time. And so I would go back on to his podcast frequently. Then his guests, or I'm sorry, his, uh, his audience started hitting me up and saying, Hey, you should start your own podcast. And, uh, eventually I did that and it just grew really quickly and so as that grew quickly, I transitioned kind of, I did less work in audio production, worked on the podcast more, but of course, having a lifetime of audio production practice was really useful whenever creating a podcast because I already had all the gear and like, that's why, you know, people ask me why my, my voice on my podcast sounds so good. And like, one of the things is my voice just reads well on a microphone, but also I still have all of my like hi-fi mastering gear that I use. So I have, you know, like a manly massive passive compressor and cranes, I mean, I'm sorry, EQ and cranes on compressor and all this stuff. And so it was just handy to have that going right into it. Um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how the transition went. And there was a lot of other moving pieces. Yeah, it's funny how sometimes something that seems like it wouldn't actually link when you look at it on the surface, and then you realize actually, when you dig deep, that was setting you up perfectly to produce such a beautifully produced podcast, to be able to speak, to be able to practice your ability to communicate as well, right? And it was all setting you up for that moment because of ultimately, if someone's trying to deliver a message, but you know, the audio quality is not there or anything along those lines, then it's going to be hard for them to consume the message the way that you want them. And like you said, the voice <laughs> listens well on the microphone. And also you had everything to support you from that perspective as well. So it's always nice when, you know, something you're doing that doesn't seem linked kind of is the path into the place that you're actually going to be going as well. So obviously that's the practical element of you having this music background as well. But you also mentioned your interest into, you know, the Eastern practices and also mindfulness when you were much younger as well. What did that look like for you? Because I can't imagine that was a particularly 
frequent and common thing for a teenager of uh, your generation to do? Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's a good question. It, you know, in the 90s, it, it, it was like there were no YouTube instructionals. There were no <laughs> books, you know, like since then, meditation has been broken out into sort of like capitalist marketing demographic things like meditation for better business performance, meditation for less stress, meditation for X, Y, and Z. And it's all been sort of what's interesting is that the wide variety of outcomes that can happen from meditation have been packaged singularly as thing like marketable tools to reach certain audiences. So if someone has like this will this meditation will increase your business performance, it's like, well sure, that like that can happen from meditation, but it's not <laughs> the it's not the reason why you would why you would start. Um anyway, so yeah, it, I got into it just because of my environment and kind of what was going on in life at that time. Um, and I really stumbled upon it by accident. I was interested in Western philosophy first. And like what happened was that I randomly heard someone say the name Nietzsche whenever I was a teenager. And then I was, I just, it just stuck in my ear. Cause like, that's a cool sounding name. Sounds like the edge of a knife, you know? And then I was in a bookstore and just saw the name on a book and I was like, Oh, all right, let's go see what's up with this. So I read it and like I, my whole family, no one ever has read a book probably until this day, you know, except for me and my brother, no philosophy, no nothing like, you know, so completely out of the, the environmental world. So I'm reading it. And so I was reading some Nietzsche and it, it, the first time it hit me where I was like, this is not what I think per se, but it's how I think it's like the kind of the math of how my mind flows like this makes sense to me. And I just became obsessed with Western philosophy. And in time, what happened is I just kind of bridged the gap and started noticing the Eastern philosophy section. And I started picking up those books and reading those. And, um, you know, what's funny is that back then, like a link was not something you'd, you know, click on obviously to take you to a place. It was, you would notice you'd be reading one book in some essay on Buddhism, they would name some other teacher or something. And you'd be like, Oh, I'm going to go find that guy's book. And so you'd go find that guy's book. And then whoever he mentioned happened to mention, you'd be, okay, I'm going to write that down and go find that guy's book. And you loved books with a lot of like name drops in them. Cause you're like, Oh, this is four or five other things I can go find now. But at the time, like I said, it wasn't positioned to like a, a large scale, like m marketing sort of industry. It was still, um, pretty outside the mainstream. And a lot of the books that I had access, like I'm from Austin, Texas. I still live here. And a lot of the books. So what I'm trying to say is like a lot of hippies <laughs> from Austin from the sixties and seventies. So there's a lot of stuff knocking around, you know, as far as like, old, you know, secondhand bookstores of like kind of the weird old sort of, uh, mystical and esoteric sort of stuff that I would find. And, uh, what's interesting is it's not laid out. Of course, now a meditation book is like, here's your 10 steps. And then it would be like long rambling essays on ideas around meditation, like no instruction, you know? And so I would try and extract like, and just understand sort of the general mind states and, and things that they were talking about and then experiment with it myself. And so that's how it all how my, my, you know, origins of meditation began. It's really responsible for why I'm a, you know, what's called like a spiritual eclecticist. You know, some people are very, um, stringent on their path, like a traditional, uh, approach. And a lot of the great teachers, someone like, uh, you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi or something like that will say, you know, pick one path and stick with it because the path is a path. One tradition is there for a reason. Like they, it's, it's been for, hundreds or thousands of years, they have it laid out for this path of gradual awakening. But what's really, what really has happened in the last few, few decades is because information on those things has become more accessible, it makes it to where you can read, you know, any type of tradition, every type of teacher, different types of, you know, wisdom traditions. You could read something from Hinduism or Buddhism or Zen or Zen Buddhism um, or Taoism or, or some type of Sufism or mysticism, whatever it is. And just sort of take what works and what's meaningful to you and kind of blend that into your own perspective on what it means to explore your inner world. And that was certainly, that's certainly why I followed that path because that sort of mine arose from just a lot of bits and pieces that were, that were kind of cobbled together. Yeah, absolutely. And do you feel that had you grown up in the generation that kids are growing up today and you had to discover 
the ancient wisdom through you know snippets of a book that someone else has written about or something along those lines rather than going directly to the source of Nietzsche and other teachers do you think that your experience with all of this information would have been completely different because I think that something that I, that stands out to me when I listen to your story is that, like you said, you had to literally write down the name of that person and probably go to the other end of the library, find that person's book and then consume that. It's not having 12,000 Google tabs open and just doing a quick Wikipedia search of this person's information. You had to go to the source and probably to the book that that person wrote. So how do you think your experience with ancient wisdom, with mindfulness, with meditation would have been had you grown up in this generation compared to discovering all of this in, you know, the niche area of the library in nineteen in the 90s, I should say? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And I mean, uh, I can't know, but I, I would, and I don't want to assume, but I feel like content now is much more surface level because there's so much on even Instagram or YouTube, or like you said, having a million Google tabs open of just random stuff that people will watch for a minute, maybe if we're lucky, there's a lot more surface level engagement with ideas and stuff because there's just so much to get through. And people for sort of like are now compulsively interested in I feel like less the the message and more just kind of getting to the next entry point of an idea as opposed to really like spending time with an idea. It's like, no, no, well, I, I read like 12 different book summaries today. It's like, okay, so like, what did that do for you though? <laughs> like, like, that's cool. But like, so a week from now, like how will that have shifted the way you move, you know, as opposed to like really diving deep into one book and like digesting it and understanding it and thinking, you know, so I feel like that perhaps if I grew up today, I wouldn't have the same depth and also the same patience I have with understanding um, really spacious co uh, concepts. Because I mean, the, you know, talking about Eastern wisdom traditions or your inner life, like, that is infinitely deep with possibility and nuance and richness and really like having the, the, the head space and the physical space to go there and go deep with one idea for an extended period of time uh, is very rewarding because it's like, you know, you go to the bottom of the ocean, you find a whole different type of treasures than you find on the shore, you know? So I, I think probably my understanding would be uh, less deep and I would be less patient. Maybe that would be better. I don't know. <laughs> you know but, uh, <laughs> but I think that's probably what the difference would be. Yeah. And I think attention span is a big one as well. It's like you mentioned right now, I think the attention span, given the fact that we have social media and we have access to so much information is that we don't get the opportunity to be obsessed with what's at the bottom of the sea because we're so you know, distracted by everything that's at the top and it's floating around and like, well, this is it's like it's within reach, but it's quite close. So maybe I'll grab this. And I think that then we miss out on the depth that we could experience from ultimately just digging a little bit deeper on that topic. And as you mentioned, you know, it's all about those 10 book summaries versus going hard on one book and then really trying to apply the learnings that, you know, the book is ultimately trying to create. And as I think also as well, and we look at modern authors as well, there's a fair degree of authors maybe writing not for the sake of portraying their idea or writing, but maybe just writing to, you know, try and rank on the New York Times bestseller list, for example, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's actually one of the things that not to go down a totally different path here, but that's one of the things that took me a few years to really like grasp whenever I first started writing and having conversations with someone like, you know, my first book was through Penguin Random House and kind of in those worlds um, is that I, my whole background is like from the time I was a, a teenager was making music. And I approached everything and I became, I was a composer at the same time that I was doing audio production. So I would compose music for commissions and stuff like that. But it was always aired on the side of, I always made like pretty experimental and avant-garde and like weird stuff. Thankfully, I transitioned into podcasting because, <laughs> 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 you know, not a lot of money in, in that. But I always, the point is, I always approached it as like an art. And I still do that. So because that's all I ever knew was like approaching everything like a creative practice. And um, I see things first as how are they relevant as, as a communication, as a piece of art. And whenever I, and like all my friends are artists or people in the creative world, like my whole, everyone has always been that. It's just the way I've always thought. And whenever I got into kind of the public space and got into conversations with writers and people who were, you know, kind of getting into higher spaces in that world, 
what was really bizarre to me was learning that a lot of authors, some of your favorite authors don't write their own books, that they, there are systems out there that people can pay $250,000 to have a company that will send people all over the different coasts in America to buy copies of your book. So it looks like organic sales so that you can sell 20,000 copies and get on a bestseller list. There are a lot of different things like that. And people that like are big figures, you know, in the public will have someone ghostwrite their book and then ha as an investment pay to have people, you know, buy their book or pay for like anything like a Forbes, like I've, all these people have all contacted me and had, you know, pitched their offers, offerings to me. So for example, like a marketing company would say, you know, I've had this meeting and they're like, so for, $10,000, what we'll do is we have like spots on like the Forbes top 10 people in mindfulness or best writers on Instagram for 2000 or for September or whatever. So number one, number three, and number five on the list will be well-known people with millions of followers that are household names. And we will insert you at number two on there so that by association, people will see that you're amongst these other people or, you know, just stuff like that. And, um, what was funny is this is one of my favorite things is as far as that is like, and I hate all that shit. Like I would never, ever do all that shit. And one of my favorite things was they were like, um, you know, and blah, 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 we can do this for you. We can do that for you. And this company was like, and we are, you know, one of the, and like, we'll place you this, but we are one of the, you know, the top 10 marketing companies of all time in Forbes magazine. And I was like, well, wait, did you guys have to pay Forbes to get to like, the top <laughs> marketing company? <laughs> and they were like, uh, I was like, and what's the, end? and they're like, well, actually the guy that owns this marketing company sits on the board of directors at Forbes. It's like, there it uh, is. Forbes, yes, right. yeah. Um, anyway, so point is, is that like that whole world is disgusting. It exists. I don't participate in it and all, but, it, but getting into the world coming from a world of art and meeting these people who I respected, that are like are doing those type of things. I was like, oh shit! Like people are just broadening their portfolios. Like that's how they see it. There's like no creative. There's no love. There's no like artistic. It's nothing about that. It's about having another gap in their portfolio expanded. It's like okay, I have a book. I have a podcast. I have a, a retreat, a coaching program. I have whatever, and I need you know this to go in there, and they plug it in. And so you were saying, you know, about people like, what is that? What's that like? You know, people just writing about these things just to hit the bestseller list. It's bizarre how popular and how common that is. Um, and it took me forever to comprehend like that that was actually even happening. Cause it just, I was like, but why? Like, why would someone do that? You know? Um, but it turns out that, uh, yeah, people are normally, uh, in interested in business as opposed to creativity. It turns out. <laughs> No, it's fascinating. And I'm glad you gave us that insight. I wasn't expecting to go down that route, but I'm certainly glad that we did. And I think it really does hit home. And that's why I think like people like yourself who are really trying to put out creative and authentic work and have dived deep and deep and deep and gone out on the other side. And what I like about your work specifically is that you go deep on a concept, but you're also able to articulate yourself in a way in which people, no matter what their journey is with mindfulness, meditation, or spirituality, are able to pick up. And that's something that I particularly enjoy about your Instagram as well. And I think that those quotes are really, really relating to a lot of people. You've amassed a lot of followers on there as well. And I think it's for good reason for the fact that a lot of people will put out those little quotes on Twitter and repost them on their Instagram. But sometimes, they're just saying a point to say a point whereas I feel like your points really hit home and what I've done today is I've collected a bunch of your Instagram quotes that I particularly enjoy and I would love for you to expand on them in a little bit more depth for me so that we can basically take the surface that you put out there and you allow people to put their own interpretation on it but ultimately what we're going to do today is hopefully go a little bit deeper so I'm going to start with the first one and I want to get your thoughts on what you said in this uh, specific post okay so the first one I've got is changing your point of view isn't an admission of ignorance it's a sign of intelligence what did you mean by that? Mm, yeah, that's a good one. Um, glad you picked that one. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, like because we have this conditioned sense of like how we see the world, we then have our viewpoint, we have our belief system, we have our assumptions about life and whatever, and our opinions ultimately. And because we are egoic creatures, we don't like to change our viewpoint sometimes on things 
because we don't want to be wrong. We don't want to feel like, because, you know, you talk about your opinions with your friends and, you know, and, and family or in your relationships. And you sort of like part of your identity is connected with this sense of like what your viewpoint is. And so people are often very resistant to changing their viewpoint because they feel like on a subconscious level, it's going to somehow nullify their, you know, their, their ego or something like that. Of course, that is, as the quote points to, that is the actual, like by doing that itself, you are falling prey to your own ego. You are looking bad. You are doing the very thing that you're trying to resist by not changing your point of view on things. Because truly, you know, a really secure, aware uh, person and ego will be able to recognize that one, you aren't your opinions. You aren't your perceptions. You aren't your conditioning. You aren't even your identity. You are like a point of awareness that is like perpetually filtering in information about reality. And if you can recognize whenever you get new information and you continuously revise your perspective and your point of view with what you're learning, then that is real growth. Like that's real intelligence because you recognize that that has nothing to do with like the, you know, your value. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. It's, it points to that your, your ego and your, your capital S self is actually mature and secure enough to go, oh, yeah, like I learned something new. Like this is a good thing. So I'll change the way that I see stuff and I'm happy to, to share about it. Yeah, I love that. And I've always had this idea that challenging your own beliefs and your own opinions can only be a good thing because if either you get closer to the truth in the sense of someone challenges it which forces you to question it and then you get a little bit closer to picking away your argument and potentially finding a new truth or a new opinion that actually serves you and the world better or ultimately and reinforces the fact that what you already believed is true so it's bizarre to me but it only becomes very very apparent when you look at it from what is the person's goal here are they trying to have their opinion completely correct and protect it at all costs without any real reason or are they trying to learn what's best for them in the world and i think that once you start to test your opinion you start to challenge them that's when you ultimately find out where you sit on that balance yeah totally and it's what's really funny about that is that like we were talking about surface level earlier most people have these really strongly held beliefs or or opinions but they haven't even really thought about them Right. It's like, it's just, they haven't thought through them. It's like, it's just what happened to arise at the time and place. Like they were probably like, maybe they were a little bit hungry. They were like, you know, a little <laughs> tired and then something happened and they formed an opinion about something. And that's what they're now clinging to without ever, even really thinking through it. So it was funny to me. You were talking about people, you know, defending their points of view and stuff like that in certain times where it's like, People do that, but it's like, what are you actually defending? You're defending like an imp, like a reflex, an impulse, a reaction, you know? So it's really useful to actually think like, what do I actually think? Why do I think this? And that's why writing is really valuable. Like it's so clarifying. Whenever you think you have a big idea about something and you go to write it down, you'll discover you have about a sentence maybe worth of whatever it was and it's not articulated very well, you know? <laughs> and it's like, oh, wait a second. I'm confusing my enthusiasm for having thought something with actually having an idea or something really concrete. And that's, you know, bulletproof. It's very, very interesting. And, and I had this thing recently, I mean, this is kind of, it's, it's, this is connected, but it's also just kind of silly. Like you're talking about, you know, how, uh, we will have a, an idea or, or, or perception about something and not realize, you know, it's one way or another way or something until maybe we get into a conversation and understand that about ourselves. And, and recently, I just had this kind of funny thought where I'm usually relatively reserved, like as a person, like I don't talk too much unless I'm one on one with somebody. But what, what sometimes if I'm hanging out with more people, and you know, it's late, I have a couple of drinks, I will start talking a little bit more. And then what happens is I often end up in kind of entertaining the you know, people all in my direct area by talking and everyone's sort of just paying attention and I'll just talk and like tell whatever stories and make people laugh and just have a good time. And I realized there was recently I was thinking, I was like, what if, what if every single time for my entire life that whenever I was doing that, that those people were just giving me their polite attention 
and I was mistaking <laughs> I was mistaking that for them actually being entertained and interested and enjoying what I was talking about for them just being like oh my like inside they're thinking oh god this guy oh should shut up you know <laughs> and I was thinking oh that, how funny would that be and maybe that is the case you know maybe maybe that's what's happened. Um, but it was a funny thing to think. Yeah. And I think that there's a sense of humility that that brings as well. It's like, maybe my ideas aren't as important as I thought. <laughs> yeah. And as important as they can be is as important as they're not in a same sense. And I think that that humility and that ability to just take that step back and be like, yeah, I do have some big ideas and some really good thought processes sometimes. But at the same time, I might get in a room where no one actually cares about this. So I think that, yeah, that brings uh, your ego back down to a good level. And ultimately, I think that that's good for everyone as well. Yeah, totally. But transitioning onto the second one I have today, which is feeling like you're late for something when you have nowhere to be is a sign you need to come back to the present moment. What did you mean by that? Yeah, that's one where I'm basically trying to point out the feeling, connect a feeling with what it feels like whenever you are detached in the present and so that someone can recognize that and then use that as a cue to then can reground themselves. So I sometimes will say that people sort of live like 30 seconds or a few minutes in the future. You know, they're not really here. They are thinking about what they have to do next. They're thinking about, you know, um, possibilities. They're thinking about that type of thing. And they're not really just here in the present grounded with what's actually happening. And so because we live essentially, if you, if you kind of live an un unexamined life, you live in a perpetual state of reactions to where you're just reacting to one thing, to the next, to the next thought, to the next sensation. And so that keeps you always trying to anticipate the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it pulls you out of being able to let go of the you know, nervous system and mental anxiety that that creates so that you can just really sink in to hear and be aware and actually like relax into yourself and expand and deepen. Cause you think about it like, like a muscle, you know, if a muscle is constricted, it's tight. There's not as much blood flow. If a muscle is relaxed and open, then it can, there's a lot of blood flow. It's spacious and the mind and body in totality work in the same way. So, you know, it's useful to tap back into the present because you can then expand, open up and be much more thoughtful. And ultimately that will help you live much more intentionally because you are not simply reacting to like your impulsive behaviors or thoughts. You have the space of mind to think mindfully about what you're saying when you're saying it, what you're doing when you're doing it, what, why you're doing things. And you have a lot more kind of ownership of your, the course of your actions and ultimately who you, you want to be. And so I pointed out that I use that um, example of like feeling like you're late for something as a way to sort of connect to what that feeling is for people so that they can recognize it in themselves and use that to go, Oh, right. I'm just sitting here feeling like edgy and like, I'm rushing around making lunch for some reason whenever like I have nowhere to be like, what am, why am I doing this? Like calm down. Let's like just relax and chill and get, you know, reconnect. What do you say to people who find that relaxing, that chilling, that presence, that moment of slowing down actually the opposite of what they want to do because of they fear being alone with their own thoughts and having an opportunity to think about their day-to-day, -day, which sometimes is just easier to distract themselves and continue to do what they're doing. What would you say to those type of people? Yeah, well, I would say that the thing that they're trying to avoid, they're going to suffer from anyway. In fact, like whenever they are, if they're like, I don't want to slow down because it's going to freak me out and I'll have to think about my own situation. I'd rather just stay distracted. And it's like, well, that feeling, like all that stuff doesn't go away while you're distracted. It's actually, un it's a, a layer underneath your like reactionary layer of mind. And whether you know it or not, it's actually informing a lot of your decisions that you feel like you are successfully distracting from <laughs> and your compulsions are just, just from those feelings. So the, even though it may feel counterintuitive, what will happen if you give yourself space to practice meditation or even be more mindful about certain things throughout your day, you'll find that all of those mental formations, all of the stuff that you could be anxious about acknowledging, once you observe them, you then learn how to let them go and to release them. And so it, it happens like relatively quickly. You'll notice because it's sort of like where these teapots that are building up all this pressure 
And once you just spend a little time engaging with those things, saying, okay, I see you, like next, I see you next, I see you next to these thoughts, it lets out the steam, it lets out all that pressure and you're able to then actually relax and go, oh, right. Now, once you have done that a little bit, if your goal is to be like effective and you want to like achieve things, because that's why one would say, I just want to stay busy instead of trying to be reflective, you'll actually become more effective at being effective by doing that because you won't have this cyclone of thoughts and emotions and stuff taking away you know, 40% of your focus and your emotional energy and just your general mental real estate that you have, that stuff can get moved away through meditation. So then when you go to approach your work or whatever the discipline is that you're trying to excel at, you'll have more of a capacity to focus, to stay focused, to strategize, to stay organized and more energy to, you know, do whatever it is that you're trying to do than you would by just trying to operate with all that pressure inside yeah it has similarities to my world of health and fitness as well in the same sense of sleep a lot of people are like well i don't have time to sleep i need to get up earlier and go to sleep later and i'm like well you do know if you slept a little bit better you would be way more effective in the day and then ultimately you wouldn't need that time because the time that you already have or the time that you've contributed to your sleep won't actually matter anymore because you'll be able to get through your tasks much much quicker and as you've said there it's kind of saying like do you want this element of pain being in the background kind of just you know giving you small doses on a day-to-day basis for the rest of your life or do you want to face this pain you know for what it is it might be more painful than a day-to-day basis but you have a way out and i think that that's the reality of the facing it versus not facing it the not facing it means it's going to be there forever and like you said it's going to influence your decisions and it's probably going to end up big in the end but if you don't it's only going to continue to be there but at least you give yourself a way out if you actually choose to face those things that you know like you said are already impacting you anyway whether you want to believe it or not yeah totally i mean that's like this one of the most confounding sort of like assumptions that i feel like the whole world almost operates on is like thinking that the amount of like just hours spent working at something is the best way to be effective and to achieve Mm. things. It's like some weird, like war of attrition, like brute force approach to, you know, that's like whenever, you know, way back in, you know, a hundred years ago during like world wars where they would just be like, okay, well there's a bunch of people with machine guns up there. It's like, Oh, should we come up with a strategy? It's like, no, just keep sending thousands of soldiers to it until enough of the dead bodies roll. They can get through and they can just, it's like, maybe we could think a little bit differently than that. And that's how a lot of people kind of work. You know, it's like, I I just love the point that you made about thinking a bit more concisely about what you're doing. You can, with that extra sleep, you can achieve whatever it is a lot quicker. And I feel like that sleep and also, you know, mindful practices have the same effect where it allows you to think in a way where you can do, you know, four hours worth of work in two hours or one hour sometimes. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's really very much worth the the cost of admission. You know, it's like people that they don't want to meditate 15 minutes. I'm like, yeah, but then you have a 12 hours of your day that you're doing stuff. If you meditate for that 15 minutes, the resulting 12 hours can be compacted into, you know, half the time whenever you're trying to, you know, accomplish things. Yeah, couldn't be more true. I couldn't agree more with that. So coming on to number three, which is appreciate how far you've come. We get stuck focusing on what's next. That moves the goalpost and never lets us feel like we've done well. Reflecting on your growth refills your confidence, tunes you into gratitude and inspires you to keep thriving. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, that's like one of the symptoms of modern culture is comparison. And we never feel like because we're always looking at like who who we perceive to be ahead of us or who has like more status or more has already done what we're trying to do. And so as we're working towards our goals, we, I think, have a really hard time ever feeling good about having achieved something because we're like, well, okay, cool. I did this, but I'm still not beyond this person. And so I feel like I'm failing and it's like, no, I mean like everything that happens, every you know path that we have, whether it be professional or personal or whatever, it's all like slow incremental changes and really consistency is the real key to advancement. But as we're going through that successful path of like consistently achieving these these benchmarks are taking us closer and closer to our goal, we can easily burn out and not feel 
inspired or have the energy or the drive to continue on that path because we're just continuing to look ahead and look at this other person or that other person and go like, oh, well, I'm just not getting anywhere because I'm not exceeding them yet. But if you take the time to really go like, okay, that's the destination for now. And let's look at where I started and let's look at where I am. And it's like, well, wow, like I'm crazy. I'm like light years ahead of where I was two years ago or maybe even two months ago. So you may not be at the goal yet, but recognizing the work that you've actually put in and the achievements that you have had gives you a, a point of reference so that you can say, okay, two years ago I was there, but now I'm here. Cool. Maybe another two years, I'll be an equal distance forward to, towards that goal and I'll keep working at it, you know, and, and keep grinding away at this so that you can get eventually to where it is that you want to be. But if you don't take the time to reflect on how much, you know, you've accomplished how much you really have, uh, how far you've gone, then it's very easy to get demotivated, you know, and to kind of give up, to go try something else and then repeat the same behavior. I mean, that's something that people do too, is like, well, I'm not succeeding at this because I tried for, you know, whatever and didn't feel like I made any advancement. So I'll switch lanes and do this. And then they start the process over again and they switch lanes and do something else and start the process over again. But really just kind of taking stock of where it is, you know, uh, can be really helpful for that. And also, as another note, like you won't always be successful at everything you do. So sometimes when you take stock and you're like, this isn't working, like I'm not making any advancements, then that would be a time to say, okay, maybe I need like a, a systematic change here or even a change into a different a different perspective or a different lane. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you personally do that? I imagine the world of being an author, being a podcaster is extremely competitive and there's always charts to tell you, quote unquote, how you're doing from a metrics perspective, both within book sales, both within podcast downloads and everything along those lines. And aside from those people, who are paying to be in those top positions how do you do your best from avoiding the comparison that is ultimately going to be easy to fall into within that level of work yeah that's a great question and i think that maybe part of it was really just kind of ground out of me in the beginning because i was trying to make a living making experimental music and so it was there was just like so much failure of like no money no attention no anything and I really had to go like, okay, why am I doing this? Like, it's not getting me anywhere. And I was like, I'm doing it because I love doing it. Like, I, I just, this is so much fun and I love making these sounds and stuff. And that really carried forward with me into everything else I do. Like, I just do it and I focus on, like, I do what I like to do, what I want to do. And I try and compete with myself and I don't worry about where other people are at. You know, because there's always going to be someone more successful than you, like successful, however you define that. There's always going to be someone that sells more books than you. There's always going to be someone that has more followers than you. So I look at like, am I being authentic? Am I doing this because I enjoy it? Is it something that I want to see exist in the world? And then I try and just do that the best I can. And then what's wild is that like analytics, book sales, podcast downloads, like launches of projects, all that shit. Like you can't control what happens. Like people think that there's a way to like, oh, well, I've got this business strategy and it's like a six month plan of how me and my PR team and the and whatever the company we're working with is going to do this thing. And then we'll predict like X amount of sales. It's like no one ever knows. If people actually knew what the recipe is, every book would be a bestseller because every publisher would say like, oh, well, we want, of course they want to make maximum amount of money. There's so much to do with luck, with timing with where culture's at, where, cause in a, like for just using books as an example, it's a two year lead up time. You know, you sell the proposal, then you have six to eight months to write. And then there's a year before it's published. So you're kind of like, you could guess where culture will be in two years and then try and write something to speak to that, you know? And so it's really, it, it's next to impossible just to just say, okay, this is definitely going to be a big, a big success. So you just have to focus on the work. And just do that the, the most honest and with as much integrity and the best you can. And then once you release it, learn what didn't go right, like what you didn't like about how it, it went out there for the next time and go, okay, well, like I learned sort of that now next time I'll know how to do it differently, but keep focusing on just doing the thing for you and the reason of why you're doing it. And all that other stuff is going to shake out how it's going to shake out, you know? 
yeah letting go of the outcome and just focusing on everything that you have control over ultimately and coming from an authentic place is ultimately what i'm hearing from you as well so i like that takeaway a lot next up is if someone shuts down or lashes out when you're honest with them it means they're only willing to listen if you serve their story yeah yeah that's um that was a kind of a big one for me you know as far as where that came from you know, just having a family member that's, you know, got some actual, not the, not the meme friendly, but actual narcissistic, narcissistic tendencies. And uh, I realized like kind of over the course of a lifetime that anytime that I try and speak truthfully about something that that person didn't want to here because it conflicted with their story of reality, which was rooted in their own narrative of them being a victim and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all those things that it would immediately be met with conflict. And it just made me realize like, oh, this person is only giving me time or attention if I, or not reacting negative, negatively, if I tell them essentially what they want to hear. And if I don't, then they react and explode and et cetera. And so it's like, all right, that's an interesting thing to watch for. You know, I think because a lot of us, obviously that's not a, that's a very unhealthy relationship that I just described. And, um, a lot of us, you know, we want to connect with people, especially family members. It's really hard because there's this cultural thing of like, there's like a weird cultural guilt that if you are at odds with a family member, especially a parent, then like somehow there's something wrong with you. Like you should be, have this good relationship. It's like, well, guess what? That's not reality. You know, like not everyone, like people are people. There's a lot of great people out there and there's a lot of shitty people out there. And some of those people are parents. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's like, and so to have this weird guilt of like, oh, I better just, have no boundaries and be abused essentially, um, by this. No, 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 that's, that's nonsense. And so, you know, people in those positions want to connect with people. They want to have friends. They want to be closer to family members, but they have to learn. That's like, just because you want that doesn't mean that you need to turn yourself into a doormat. It doesn't mean that you should allow yourself to be treated poorly because you either have the desire for a situation that doesn't exist or you are, you just feel guilty. Like you have to keep reengaging in that. So I wrote that thing to help people sort of realize like the challenging relationships in your life. What, what is the structure of those, you know, and is this a healthy, like if it feels bad every time you engage with it, here's something to look for to see if this person is just kind of using you as an, an ornament to their own story versus having a real balanced, healthy connection there. How do you help people step away from that? Because I can relate with this a lot. As a lot of people will say, um, blood is thicker than water or family is everything. And it's all of these mantras and all of these descriptions that have been labeled off the premise of nothing other than, you know, having the same DNA as someone. And I've always believed that no one should have a free pass into your life. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in the same household as them or you met them two minutes ago. So how do we get people to step away from that? Because it's such a norm that I think on a very, very, you know, fundamental level, we all want to live with, you know, ultimately what we maybe even from an evolutionary perspective as well, there's a level of that tribal feeling of the first people that you encountered in your life with your family and the people you grew up with, the people who share the same DNA as you. So there's this real big desire to have that link with your family. But quite often, as you mentioned, reality is not that whatsoever. So how do we step away from that when we know it truly doesn't serve us? And is there any coming back if for example, the person isn't willing to work on it, but you want to make it work. Where do you go with those type of situations, which is a pretty complex question? Yeah, no, no, it's a good question. And it's, you know, it's something I have a lifetime of experience in. So, and it's, first off, it's just uh, some situations, I'll tell, as a 41-year-old person, let me just give some perspective to people who may be a lot younger than me listening to this. Some situations that you will encounter in life just suck. There, there's no good resolution to them. They're just bad things, unfortunately. And the sooner that you recognize that, the better. 
Right. So if you have a, a, a family member that you're dealing with, it's like that. You can try and try and try and try to make it right and to connect and to make it how you want it to be. But sometimes it just won't be that way, not because of anything that you did, but because of the baggage, the conditioning, the, you know, the mental health issues that this another person has. It just, like I said, it, it just sucks. And it's like, and it's sad and it hurts, but it doesn't mean that you have to define your life off of someone else's issues, you know? And I think that family is the most important thing, but I also think that it's important to remember that you choose your family. You know, you choose family is not, it is not just happened. Like I, f I fell out of the same fleshy doorway as you. Now we're bound together instricably forever. It's like, you know, we, you are, there are other people in life you will find that bec can become your family, you know, and then those are the people that you have those important connections with. If a person is working to try and reconnect with a family member and it's failing, you have to, you, you have options. You know, you can one, you can give it space and say, like, okay, I'll try again in six months. I'll try again in six months. And you can do that until you aren't being, you know, kind of picked clean of your energy. You know, if you, every time you try, you get berated and feel bad about yourself or something like that. And it's like, well, then you have to choose yourself at some point and say like, okay, I tried these times earnestly without any aggression. I tried with grace and with love to bring this connection back and I'm getting the same shit. So now it's not on me. Like I tried if they want, and I, you know, I have said this line before. It's like, if you want to have a relationship, we need to be able to communicate like adults. And if you can't do that, we can't talk until you can talk to me like that. And we can speak like that. And now you've created a boundary. You've laid down some work where it's like, this is out of love. Because if we keep having this type of conversation, there's going to just be more and more resentment and distance. And it's going to you know, decrease the health of the relationship. So out of the interest of love for the relationship, these are the, these are the rules. And it's up to you to engage with those if you want, you know. And sometimes that can be a wake up call for some, sometimes, sometimes some people can react to that and it'll make things worse. Um, but either way, you'll get a clear glimpse of the truth. And again, at some point, if anyone listening is really struggling with a family member that it's just a really bad relationship, sometimes you have to set a boundary like that and then give yourself the gift of space. Choose yourself for a while. And just say, you know what, I'm going to, I've spent my whole life putting energy into this. It's created sadness and guilt and anxiety and stress. No more. I'm not carrying this anymore. You say your piece. You say, you know, if you want to reconnect, here are the boundaries. And now I'm going to put my energy into me. I'm going to pour into me and try and, you know, give myself the respect that I deserve and live my life in the way that I want. And if that person can come around, then they can. But if not... Again, it's not your fault. Absolutely. And you can only knock on a door so many times. And I'm sure by taking that step back, focusing on yourself, focus on your needs, your boundaries will give that person the best opportunity to come into your life if they are available to that. And ultimately, if they don't, at least you're still doing what's best for you. So I really like that takeaway. Yeah, I would also say like as an experiment if someone's in that situation, even just if it feels too tough to think like, oh, I'm never talking to this. I'm never going to talk to my dad again. You know, like that's an extreme thing. But if you give them that piece and then say, you know what, let's go, let me go like three months without any communication and just experiment and watch how you feel. Watch for that experiment. Go like, how is my mind? How are my stress levels? How is my like depression? How's my happiness? How am I like, what am I doing different now? that I'm not living with this dark cloud or this like crazy energy in the back of my mind all the time and see if you don't feel lighter and more free and more optimistic and just watch. And then what that can do is will be instructive as to how that relationship is treating you, how it's draining and affecting your life. Because if we spend our entire lives, literally from the second we're born with a family member, we don't know what life is like with space from them. And so we get used to, the shitty parts of our lives, the parts of our lives that make us unhappy. And we think that's what life is. 
because it's all we've always felt it. But if we can create space there, then we're like, wait a second, the dark cloud is gone. This is life too? Like, wow. And so it can be very instructive to experiment like that. Yeah, I like that. And it should be very indicative of your next steps as well. Because if, in reality, if you've never seen another view of the world, then you're not going to be tempted in going into that direction. All you think of is, okay, there's this dark cloud hanging around, or I don't have my dad in my life, for right. example, right? Otherwise, if you do take that step away and you're able to see, well, actually, there's a really, really bright outlook on life when I take this space from this person that I need to, it's like, well, actually, do I want to go back into those dark clouds? And what am I willing to accept? And like you said, choosing yourself, am I willing to lose myself within this in honor of keeping this person in my life who probably isn't too productive for me whatsoever but it's only once you get that insight do you really have the opportunity to make that choice because otherwise it's choosing the unknown or it's choosing the dark clouds but at least you have the ability to choose between the dark clouds and now maybe a lighter reality but yeah you're only going to see that if you make that brave choice absolutely and growth lives in the unknown that's the thing that, you know, people usually don't realize is like, it's, it seems scary to go out into uncharted waters, but that's where all the expansion happens. You know, it's because the ordinary lives within the known. It's like, you can't grow from a lack of new information, a lack of new experience because you're just used to it all. So there's no growth there. So you have to go into the unknown to find the places where you can then expand and grow. And once you do it, you learn it's not scary. It's actually like vital to happiness. <laughs> vital and yeah. exciting, right? It becomes something that you welcome into your life. So yeah, I love that. Right, transitioning on to the next one. The last 10% always feels harder than the first 90%. Remember that when you've been putting in the work and start doubting if you'll get there, you'll make it. You're just at a stage where patience has become as important as practice. Yeah, I mean, that's one that kind of connects to something we were talking about earlier, you know, as people like get on something and they want to try and, you know, complete this project or they want to, you know, see through uh, an idea or a vision that they had. It's just something that I have experienced over my entire life of working on, you know, writing albums or writing books or producing things. I mean, all this stuff. The last bits are always the bits that take the longest and, you know, are kind of the hardest. And once we get this huge chunk of a project or something done, we feel like, oh, I put so much time and energy into that. Now let's wrap it up. And we don't realize that the finish line is actually a bit further out than we think it is. And so then we get into the space of like, oh, my God, why won't this project? Why can't I finish this? It's like, well, <laughs> because you just kind of misunderstood where the actual finish line is and spent all your energy up front, you know. So just remembering that that last 10 percent is is uh, really, really where a lot of the work is can help someone stay motivated and not get too discouraged uh, in that state. And that's one of the things I love thinking about, like the creative practice in general is watching for those little shifts of like, what part of your creative toolkit do you need to use in each situation? And I feel like patience is one of those that is rarely thought of because art comes from excitement. It comes from like, we have an idea, emotions turn on, we get like enthusiasm and a lot of art comes from this like, yeah, like let's go, you know, do this thing. And that's great. But that's a lot of times the only tool that people know how to work with is like, I'm feeling this, I'm excited, let's do this thing, let's crush this. It's easy to forget because art generally, the, the ability to do it and to beat resistance generally comes from emotional enthusiasm. We forget that patience is a huge tool. Space in projects is like incredibly valuable. And while you, you know, in those times of enthusiasm, you may not apply it. The times to apply it are like, okay, now the romantic, the sexy part of, of creation, we're out of that phase now. Now we're in, like, if you're working on a song and you're like, okay, I make the beat. That sounds amazing. I'm going to put like a sample here. That sounds amazing. Put the vocal track here. Amazing. Extra vocals in the background. Throw some effects on them. This is crazy. I'm going to mix it. Like, okay, that sounds so good. That's all exciting because you're like creation. You're seeing the thing come to life. 
And it's like, well, now you have an equal amount of time mixing, tweaking, producing with a fine tooth. That's not like the fun part for people because you're not, you've already made the, it's already out there. Like now I have to sand it and polish it. So those later phases of a creative uh, project, yeah, remembering that patience is a huge boon to those uh, is a good way to just, you know, help people stop from creating something. And then what usually happens is people that I mentor, they will, for a music example, they will create a track, get 80% done with it, and then go, uh, I don't know, and they'll start a new track and get 80% done with it and go, oh, I'm just going to start another track because they don't want to, they don't know how to finish. They don't, you know what I mean? So they want to go back and get another hit of that buzz of the first part and they don't know how to do the last part. And so a lot of the times the assignment I'll give them is they'll say, and I'll usually kind of give them a little bit of a carrot at the end of the stick as I say, complete a track and I'll master it for you for free. So, but you got to finish it and then send it over and I'll, I'll, I'll do the, the back end part for you, but finish the track. And a lot of times they don't, <laughs> a lot of times they don't because they're just like, they, you know, they just aren't there yet. But yeah, remembering that is, is really valuable. Yeah. And there's so much in that because I think there's, there's addiction to the sense of progress as well. And it's just progress in the thing that we actually enjoy doing. You see it a lot in the work that I do as well. I work with a lot of people with their health and fitness and they'll go through their fat loss journey, for example, and they are more than happy to lose those first three to five kilos. But the goal that they have is losing 10 kilos, just as an arbitrary example. And they go back and forth with dropping those three to five kilos, feeling amazing about it, slipping backwards, and then going and doing those same three to five kilos over again, because they feel that that's the sense of progress. They're like, well, I've seen the scales go down. I'm seeing the scales go down, but ultimately they're no they're not actually moving any closer to where they truly want to be. They're just addicted to this idea of making progress, even if it's actually not serving the greater good of where they want to go. And I think the second thing that I took away from that is that creativity and progress like in any thing that you commit to in life is generally not linear, you know, and realistically mm -hmm. you might make 80% progress on a project within the first 24 hours of a creative endeavor, but then it might take six months to actually finish it, you know? And that's what you said in terms of like layering on the vocals, putting the beats together and all this type of stuff. But then the tweaking and actual, the finishing of that process might take way longer. So I think it's about recognizing that, you know, the level of progress is never linear and giving yourself, like you said, enough space and time to actually be able to complete and recognizing what the mission was in the first place. And also not being addicted to that safe place of making progress in the area that you can, can be super, super valuable. People. Those are the two things I really took away from what you just mentioned. And I'm going to transition onto just one more because I know that we're uh, running out of time. I would love to spend a lot longer with you, but I want to finish off on this strong one as well. So people often feel guilty for treating themselves well because they've spent so long being mistreated. Learning to accept your own love is a process, but once you start to feel how good it feels to feel full, you'll never settle for feeling empty again. Yeah, if you grow up in a situation where you're always feeling depleted, you know, emotionally or physically or, you know, relationally or whatever it is. Yeah. Just learning to actually that you have worth and that you have value and that it's okay. And it's actually important to pour into yourself, you know, to take care of yourself, you know, and that's one of the, the sad things is that people that come up in family dynamics where, you know, like a, a, child is ultimately parenting a parent because you're just trying to like, you're trying to deal with them and get them through their shit and deal with all their stuff. And you know, that you learn that like that, Oh, it's not about your happiness. It's about trying to give and maintain some other person's happiness so that it keeps away your stress and anxiety, because if they're taken care of, they won't be as mean to you <laughs> or abusive to you. And so you'll have lower anxiety as long as you take care of them. So just as an example, someone that grows up with that, then they reach adulthood and then they are like, they don't have any of the understanding or tools to be able to even take care and give, you know, treat themselves well because of that. They're just like, they've managed their sort of traumatic relationship the whole time. And so, uh, yeah, that one's just speaking to like anyone that's experienced something like that, looking inward and learning it and just slowly like making more of an effort to treat themselves well and just getting a sample of what that feels like and 
through just getting a kind of a taste of it, then being like, okay, this is a priority and this is what I should be doing. Yeah. And then having the bravery to continue with that as well. I heard something a little while ago saying that, you know, for the first time that you acknowledge yourself, it might feel a little bit like self-indulgence, for example. And the first time you start maybe giving yourself the rest that you deserve, etc., you might feel guilty for the fact that you're doing those things because of you're not used to it. But there is no guilt that should be related to that. It's just the sense that this is very, very new to you and you have to get used to the fact that just because you've not experienced before doesn't mean that that's your destiny ultimately, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Whenever people ask me what my favorite hobby is, I'm like laying on my bed and staring at the ceiling for two hours doing nothing. <laughs> but, but it took me a while to feel comfortable, like not feel guilty doing something like that, you know? Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, Corey, this has been a incredible and inspiring conversation. I really appreciate your time today. Can you let everyone know where they can find you if they want to keep up with the work that you're doing or connect with you in another way? Yeah, for sure. All my uh, social handles are Hey Corey Allen, and then my website is Hey Dash. Uh, or my website is Corey-Allen.com and then all the music and meditation stuff and books and all that stuff's there. Corey, thank you again. Yeah, thank you, man. Hello team, I just wanted to take a moment to thank each and every one of you for listening and coming back every week. We're approaching three years of this podcast and in this time we've ranked the number one spot and top 10 in so many different countries. We continue to grow in downloads and the quality of the conversations are getting better and better. And that is all thanks to you. If you've enjoyed listening over the past few years or you're new here, I would truly appreciate if you could do me a favor and go over to the British Podcast Award website and vote for us on the listener's choice section. All you have to do is type in Simply Fit Podcast, click on the podcast, type your name and your email, and the final most important part is to verify your vote by clicking the link that they'll send you via email. I would appreciate this immensely. And if you could give us a vote and also get your family, your friends, your cats and dogs to vote too, as long as your cats and dogs have email addresses, of course, this would be absolutely incredible. So thank you so much, team. I'm excited to see what we might be able to do if we all make that effort to vote. The link is in the description below. It's literally the first line. So please head over there, make your vote. And I am super, super excited to see what happens. And I'll keep you posted on the results as well. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.